Some call me Steve, Dad, Husband or Friend. Others might call me Boss, Coach or Mentor. Today you can call me the Leadership Hacker. Thanks for listening in, I really appreciate it. My job as the Leadership Hacker is to hack into the minds, experiences, habits and learning of great leaders, C-suite executives, authors and development experts so that I can assist you developing your understanding and awareness of leadership. I'm Steve Rush and I'm your host today. I'm the author of Leadership Cake, I'm a transformation consultant and leadership coach and can't wait to start sharing all things leadership with you. Joining me on today's show is prolific writer Bruce Tolgan. He's also the founder and CEO of Rainmaker Thinking. Before we get a chance to speak with Bruce, it's the Leadership Hacker News. In the news today, we explore how the generations are adapting to grammar. Experts have found that the correct use of full stops in text messages actually make young people feel uneasy as it symbolizes that the recipient is either annoyed or rather simply concluding a message and they want it to carry on. A recent study claims that young people are intimidated by full stops used in social media communication as they're interpreted as a sign of anger. Teenagers and those in their early 20s who are known now by Generation Z or Generation Z if you're in the UK have grown up with phones and smartphone technology and tend to use much shorter and abbreviated messages using very little punctuation. So when full stops are used in text, younger people often perceive it to be passive aggressive and a sign of irritation. According to The Telegraph, Leiden University's Dr. Lauren Fontaine tweeted, if you send a text message without a full stop, it's already obvious that you've concluded your message. So if you add that additional marker for completion, they will read something into it and it tends to be intonation or a negative tone. And looking back, 2015 study from Binghamton University in New York involving 126 undergraduates found that texts ending with a full stop were perceived as insincere, whereas messages ending with exclamation points were considered more heartfelt. Professor David Crystal, one of the world's leading language experts, argues that the meaning behind the usage of full stops is changing fundamentally. He argues, you look at the internet or anything like instant messaging as an exchange, now uses fast dialogue. People simply don't put full stops in, he says, unless they want to make a point. Or, if you're a dinosaur like me, who's been brought up with grammar? So in the age that we work and live in today, just be thoughtful of your audience. And the leadership lens here is know your audience and adapt your communication style verbally and written to make sure it makes the most sense. That's been the Leadership Hacker News. If you have any news, stories or insights, please get in touch. Bruce Tolgan is a special guest on today's show. He's the founder and CEO of Rainmaker Thinking Inc. He's a prolific writer, having published over 21 books, including his latest book, which is Being Indispensable at Work. Bruce, welcome to the Leadership Hacker podcast. Oh, thank you so much for including me. It's our pleasure indeed. We're going to get into the subject of writing and your latest book shortly. But before we do that, perhaps you can give the listeners a little bit of an insight as to how you've arrived at being the founder of Rainmaker Thinking and a little bit about the journey that brought you here. Yeah. So 27 years ago, uh, I was an unhappy lawyer at number two Wall Street. 
And um, I set out to uh, answer a question, really, uh, which is, what, what are your young employees whispering about over lunch? Of course, I was one of those young employees. And um, uh, I had a conversation with a senior partner at the law firm where I was an associate. Um, and I said to him, you know, if you only knew what your young employees were whispering about over lunch. And he got so curious, I could tell, you know, so I thought, well, I'll write an article about that. And I started interviewing people and uh, I never, uh, never stopped. So um, that's really how I got going. Um, uh, my first book was Managing Generation X. That was based on my first batch of interviews. And over the last 27 years, we've interviewed more than a half a million people from more than 400 organizations. And everything we do is based on these ongoing in-depth interviews. And intergenerational leadership is something that's close to my heart and my clients too. It's, it's becoming more prolific. We've now got kind of four. And in certain cases, we've even got five generations that are all working at the same time. And that's probably the first time that's happened, including, of course, the Generation X and Y, Millennials, etc. right? Yeah. I mean, when I started out, I was young. <laughs> and um, so I was interviewing young people. Uh, one of the longitudinal studies we've done for 27 years now is about the great generational shift in the workplace and uh, in the workforce overall. And uh, so, you know, Gen Xers now are no longer young. Uh, millennials are no longer young. I mean, the young people in the workplace now are post-millennials. So we've tried to keep our finger on the pulse of the new young workforce for a long time now. Uh, I wrote a book called Not Everyone Gets a Trophy about the millennials. Um, I wrote a book called um, Bridging the Soft Skills Gap, How to Teach the Missing Basics to Today's Young Talent uh, about the late stage millennials and post millennials. And um, every uh, January, we release a, a white paper called The Great Generational Shift in the Workforce. And just trying to share with our clients uh, what we're seeing in terms of generational change in the workplace. It's really fascinating. And that's a core part of what Rainmaking do now. But perhaps give us a bit more of a broader insight as to what Rainmaking thinking do. Yeah, so we have three longitudinal studies going now for um, uh, the first one is the great generational shift. Uh, the second one is uh, about leadership communication in the workplace, um, uh, how people communicate up, down, sideways and diagonal and what works and what doesn't, uh, what gets in the way. Um, and what we find in that ongoing study is we're always looking at why does communication in the workplace so often default to unstructured communication? And when you have unstructured communication, often you lack substance. And what happens is problems hide below the radar. And so many of the things that go wrong in the workplace, we're able to tie back to unstructured communication. And so one of the things we do is try to help our clients put more structure and substance into their communication at every level. Uh, and then the third uh, longitudinal study we've got going is called uh, Winning the Talent Wars. And it's about trends in staffing, strategy, training, performance management and retention, uh, succession planning, knowledge transfer. Uh, and again, what we try to do is whether uh, the labor market is, is um, favoring employers or employees, uh, we're trying to track long-term trends in the labor market 
and what we've been tracking now for more than two decades is a shift from the old-fashioned long-term hierarchical career path to what we call uh, more of a short-term renewable transactional career path. And uh, so those are the three main studies that all of our work is based on. Uh, the reason I'm able to write so many books is because, you know, we're always doing research. So every once in a while, I just press print, Steve, you know. <laughs> yeah, sure. And one thing that's really fascinated me about the time that we've spoke is that you have got this real insatiable appetite for writing and knowledge. Where does that bug come from? Yeah, I mean, I often think of Dorothy Parker, uh, the great uh, American writer. Uh, she famously said, um, I hate writing, but I love having written. <laughs> yeah, I know that. Uh, and I think maybe I love having written. So, you know, I'm always doing this research. I don't want it to go to waste. Um, I type really fast. So <laughs> I'm not sure. Uh, I, I think it, my insatiable desire um, to write, I don't know if I would describe it that way, but you have me examining my own uh, self here. And in, in, uh, so this, this counts as a great interview because here you've got me really thinking. I guess from what you've described, it's more about the writing is a byproduct of your appetite to want to share knowledge and insights that you've captured. Would that be a fairer summary? Yeah, I'm a student first and foremost. Um, I think probably what I'm best at is being a student and what I am at heart is a student. I see myself every time I go into an organization, uh, I want to learn about the organization and the people. I want to learn what's going right, what's going wrong, where there are opportunities, where there are puzzles, uh, where there are opportunities to help. And, um, you know, if you're always asking questions and taking notes, um, eventually you get common denominators. When I see a problem return over and over and over again, then what happens is I start looking for solutions. And if I can find a solution, then I've got a book. Awesome. Sounds great. It's a great approach to capturing knowledge, information, and then sharing it elsewhere. Now, in the latest book, Being Indispensable at Work, the principles about that book is around win influence, be overcommitment, and get the right things done. So what was it that set you on that path? Well, what we see over and over again is, of course, everybody at work wants to be... I mean, look, some people don't want to be that indispensable go-to person. Some people want to hide. If you want to hide, you're not my kind of person. You're not going to be interested in my books. Um, you know, my books are not filled with shortcuts and easy solutions. Um, most of my books, the punchline is uh, work harder, work smarter, work faster, work better. <laughs> you know, most of our punchlines are take a walk every day and eat your vegetables. So, uh, but, but assuming that you want to work effectively, that you want to be uh, one of those indispensable go-to people, then uh, the thing that usually gets in the way is uh, people, if you want to be a go-to person, people go to you. And if they keep going to you, you get overwhelmed. And if you're overcommitted, um, then pretty soon you're juggling. If you're overcommitted, pretty soon you have to start saying no. Uh, if you're overcommitted, you're dropping the ball, you have delays, mistakes, uh, you, you do damage to relationships. So the puzzle I was really trying to solve in this book is how do you become one of those indispensable go-to people without succumbing to overcommitment syndrome? And it's a bit of a byproduct of being great at what you do, isn't it? People will always come to the people they can trust. And in the book, you talk about this overcommitment syndrome. 
So if I'm a leader and I've got overcommitment syndrome or my team have, how can I recognize it in me and others? What will be, how will it manifest itself? Well, look, you know, if you want to be uh, indispensable, you, you, you have to play a longer game. And the big mistake that people make is thinking, well, if I'm great at what I do, then I'm indispensable. Well, okay, if you you got to be great at what you do. But we've all known technical experts nobody wants to work with, right? And they say, well, if I work harder than everyone else, I'll be indispensable. Well, sure, but we've all seen people who work their heart out but don't really get things done or they don't get the right things done or they don't get things done right, right? right? And, and they say, well, okay, it's all about attitude. I got to have a great attitude. Well, we've all seen people who have a great attitude who end up over-promising and uh, they really want to be helpful. So uh, th their way of manifesting a good attitude is they say yes to everyone and everything. Well, if you say yes to everyone and everything, you're not making good decisions. You're going to get overcommitted. And, and, and it means you're likely to not do, um, not really be able to serve anyone uh, ultimately, optimally. So, you know, you have to play the long game, but the long game is played one moment at a time. So, look, here's what happens. Some people, they want to be indispensable. So here's what they do. They say, yes, 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 until they're overcommitted. And then they feel like they have no choice but to say no. So then they start saying no, 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 until they get a break or until they get some of their time back. And then they say yes, 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 yes again. Um, but they're saying yes because they want to please in the moment. And they're saying no because they're overwhelmed uh, and they, they have to say no. But people who are go-to people who are indispensable, who stand the test of time, they take each request as it comes and they try to make a good decision and they, they, so they know when to say no and how to say yes so i guess one of the coping strategies for this is and you call this out as a chapter in your book it's when to say no and how to say yes how how would i know when the right time is to say no and and how should i then say yes well you got to make a decision so if what you're doing is saying yes because you want to please that's not the right reason right uh you want to please in the so yes is where all the action is yes is how you prove yourself yes is how you build relationships yes is how you add value don't waste your yeses right yes is also a commitment if you say yes then you better deliver and that means you need a plan of action it means you need time to execute um, and so you want to say yes when you can deliver. You want to say yes when it's a good idea. And what we've learned is that, you know, people who say you have to learn how to say no, um, that's, it sounds great in theory, but you can't sugarcoat your no such that anyone wants to hear it. <laughs> you know, it's still no. Yeah, it's true. Yeah. You know, so, so, so the key to no in the long term, it's having a reputation for being right. It's having a reputation for being aligned with leadership. It's having a reputation for being professional and businesslike. It's having a reputation for how you conduct yourself. You're all about serving others, but you make really good decisions because you know if you're going to serve others, uh, you got to make good decisions because you can't do everything for everyone. So you have to do the right things for the right reasons. So when Steve says no, I stop and think, gee, if Steve said no, maybe this was not the right ask. If Steve says no, uh, maybe no is the right answer. If Steve says no, I better listen to what comes next. So it's, that's the long game. You want to have a reputation. You want to be known for making good decisions 
for being responsible, for being service oriented. You're not saying no because you don't want to help. You're not saying no because you're overwhelmed. You're not saying no because you're feeling like you're drowning in, in work. You're not saying no because you don't like me. You're saying no for a good business reason. So that's the long game. In the short term, the, the, the trick is you've got to be aligned with your, with your chain of command. So know where your boss is coming from. Know what your boss would say. Uh, know what, what are the, the, the values, the priorities, the ground rules, the marching orders. So you have your good vertical anchor. And then when somebody makes a request, listen, tune in. Uh, the, the best way to put yourself in a position to make a good decision is spend more time on the ask. Now, that's true. If you're making an ask, make sure that you shape a really good ask. But so much of what people have to say to you at work is asking. Stop and tune in. Pay attention to the request. What you really want to do is, is ask the asker the right questions. What exactly what do you need? How do you need it? When do you need it? How can I help you help me help you? And the more you pay attention to the ask, uh, the more you're going to see, is this a big ask or a small ask? Is it a small ask hiding as a big ask or a big ask hiding as a small ask? You, you, you got to tune in. And then uh, if you can't do it, the worst thing in the world you can do is say yes when, when really you're not going to be able to deliver. Or if you say yes when you really are not allowed to deliver. Or you say yes when, hey, this is really not a good idea. So a good no is a huge favor. And a good, every good no is there to make room for a better yes. I love the, that principle of tuning in because in my experience as a coach and as a consultant, as well as leading businesses, understanding the request is so, so important to getting a yes. And actually, I suspect that the more time you spend tuning in, the more likely you're going to say yes to the right things that you'll be able to deliver effectively, right? Absolutely. That's, that's what it's all about. Is there a room for a maybe in here? Yeah. I mean, that's right. So, so, um, when you don't know the answer, the best thing you can do is engage with the ask. Get to know that request better. Sometimes when somebody asks you for something and they make a request, you're the wrong person because they don't really understand what you do. Uh, or, or maybe their ask because they don't really understand what you do. Maybe their ask needs work. It needs to be fine tuned. So, so sometimes you want to uh, help somebody fine tune their ask, go back. Uh, maybe sometimes the answer is not yet. Sometimes the answer is I could do that for you, but I won't have, I'll have three hours a week from Tuesday, <laughs> right? Sometimes the answer is, oh, right. you know who you want to, I'm the wrong guy. This is a job for Steve. Got it. Yeah. Makes loads of sense. There's one thing I love in the book, Bruce, that you talk about, which is the go-to-ism. What's a go-to-ism? Yeah. Go-to-ism. I wanted to call the book go-to-ism, but the publishers were like, nobody will know what that is. And, you know, uh, so it's, 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 it's the way of the go-to person. It's, it's thinking like a go-to person. You think like a go-to person. You want, look, being indispensable is in the eye of the beholder. The question is, to whom are you indispensable? Uh, if you're a go-to person, that means people want to go to you and you want them to keep going to you. That means that you're somebody who is trusted and relied upon to deliver consistently. When other people have a need, 
they go to you. So first it's being a go-to person, but it's also finding go-to people and realizing that when you go to someone else, it's not all about your needs. You want to go with, when you have a request or a need, you should still go with a service mindset. I'm going, I want to go to the right person because I want to give that person an opportunity to serve, to add value. Uh, I want to go, what can I do? I can be a great customer. I can help you help me. If I can't find someone, uh, maybe I can build someone up. Uh, so it's, it's an upward spiral. It's, it's realizing that the way you build influence. See, some people, they want to use influence, right? So it's all about getting what they need out of other people. Well, if you're somebody who wants to use influence, then every time you try to use influence, you're probably going to lose influence because if you're always trying to get what you need out of other people, other people don't root for you. They root against you. Sure. Other people see you as a taker, right? So, so you can either be an influence user or an influence builder. If you want to build influence, the way you build influence is by adding value. And, and by the way, this is not totally selfless. You don't have to be a saint, right? If you... If, 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 if you want to be valuable, add value. If you're ambitious, the number one thing you can do is be valuable. And if you want to be valuable, that means you got to be adding value every step of the way. That means in every interaction. So go-to-ism is it's thinking like a go-to person. It's, it's having a service mindset. It's, um, it's realizing that lead from wherever you are. That doesn't mean be a steamroller and I get things done whether I'm in charge or not. It means wherever you are, you've got to assess the chain of command, the lines of authority. You've got to align yourself and then communicate with structure and substance up, down, sideways and diagonal and, and, and make good decisions because your time and energy uh, is what you have to give. So every time you say yes, you're making a commitment. Don't waste your yeses. And then work smart. That, that doesn't mean, you know, you only work in your area of passion. It doesn't mean, you know, you're so smart. Nobody ever sees you learning. It doesn't mean you only do the things you're good at. It means everything you do, you take the time to get good at it. Uh, and then, you know, yes, you can have a long to-do list, but you get things done. Uh, you, you know, you, the, the longer your to-do list, the less you can afford to juggle. You can only focus on one thing at a time. So no matter how long your to-do list is, you got to focus on one thing at a time. Sometimes it's even better to have a to-don't list yeah, almost right. so that you prioritize, right? Exactly. I mean, what I always say to people is, you know, show me your to-do list. No, I want to see your do list. What are you going to do right now? Yeah. Got it. In your experience, Bruce, when it comes to being indispensable, is there one thing that you could maybe anchor into that is the, the biggest disabler of somebody being indispensable? What, if, what would be the one thing that would hold somebody back the most? Well, the biggest mistake that people make is trying so hard to be a go-to person that they overpromise. Uh, if you, if you are, don't be the overpromiser. Don't be the overpromiser. Be somebody who, if you make a promise, I can take it to the bank. It becomes an overplayed strength then, doesn't it? Yeah. I mean, look, you want to be known for delivering. And so you've got to say, yes, if all you have up your sleeve are no's, then uh, you, you, nobody's going to go to you. <laughs> you don't have a lot to show if all you have up your sleeve are no's. Um, but when you say yes, I want. when you say no, I want to know it's good 
for a good reason. And when you say yes, I want to know you're going to deliver. Sure. Now, this part of the show is where we turn the leadership lens on you. So not only are you a prolific writer and the CEO of Rainmaker Thinking, you're also a leader in your own right. And therefore, this is where I get a chance to hack into your leadership mind. And the first thing I'd like to do, Bruce, is for you to share with our listeners, what would be your top three leadership hacks? Well, if you're a leader of other people, if you're charged with responsibility and authority in relation to someone else's livelihood and career, that's a profound responsibility. So step one, own your power. Uh, and, And don't practice false empowerment. False empowerment is uh, sink or swim, reinvent the wheel, figure it out. False empowerment is when you say, oh, do it however you think it should be done. uh, And then I let myself off the hook. Real empowerment is about setting people up for success, making it clear to people what's up to them and what's not, uh, and and providing real guidance, direction, support, and coaching. Uh, So that's number one. Number two, don't practice false fairness. False fairness is treating everybody exactly the same. There's nothing less fair than treating high performers and low performers the same. Uh, uh, so, so you should do more for people when they go the extra mile. Give everyone the chance to succeed. Give everyone the chance to earn. But everybody's a special case. So you got to treat everybody like a special case. Uh, and number three, don't think you don't have time to lead. You don't have time not to lead. Uh, if, if, if you, if you think you don't have time for regular structured dialogue, what's, here's, what's going to happen. You're going to spend all your leadership time, touching base, interrupting, looking at email, being in meetings while problems hide below the radar. If you don't drill down and have substantive structured dialogue with your people, you're going to miss problems hiding below the radar, and then they're going to blow up. And you're going to spend way too much of your leadership time solving problems that have gotten out of control that should have been solved easily. Bruce, they're great hacks. And the last one in particular resonates with me because I observe on in many occasions, particularly as leaders grow through the hierarchy of seniority in organizations, they actually spend less time in that structured conversation. Do you observe that? What's your experience of that in what you do with, with Rainmaker Thinking? Yeah, I mean, well, for one thing, people move into positions of supervisory responsibility because they're very good at something. It's often not because they're good at leading. And, um, and, and, you know, then we put them in charge of people and often we teach them how to do a little extra paperwork. Nobody ever does the systematic work of teaching them how to do the people work. And then as they move up the chain of command, they get worried about, uh, uh, working their lateral relationships. And, and it's very important. Of course, collaboration is key, especially at an executive level. Uh, but the best leaders, um, they know no matter how high up the chain of command you go, uh, nobody needs a weak leader. And the people who report to you, um, look, every single day, you, you, first person you got to manage every day is yourself. Second person you got to manage every day is your boss. And then third, anyone right. who reports to you, uh, you've got to provide regular structured guidance, direction, support, and coaching. And yeah, I mean, you, you, you got to be vigilant about that. Uh, and, and organizations that are committed to uh, leadership culture, uh, no matter how high up the chain of command you go, you still have that regular structured dialogue with your direct report. I have a quote which I use quite often with my clients, which is structure plus discipline equals freedom. And the first look I get is, are you serious? I'm going to be confined because I'm structured and I have to be more rigorous and I get more freedom. And of course you do because it creates the space for you to do what's important, right? Yeah, that's absolutely right. I mean, look, um, 
you know, if you're at work and somebody's paying you, um, there's a lot of stuff that's just not up to you. Uh, decisions are being made. There are rules. There are policies. There are priorities. And the biggest favor you can do for somebody is first clarifying for them all the stuff that's not up to them because uh, then they have guardrails. And um, good news, like once you know all the stuff that's not up to you, there's still a lot of stuff left over that is up to you. Definitely so. Now we're going to move to a part of the show which we affectionately call Hack to Attack. So this is a time in either your life or your work where something hasn't worked out. And actually, as a result of that adversity or the challenge that comes with that, you've now learned from it and you use it as a positive in your life or your work. What would be your Hack to Attack? I can say writ large, I can say that I've made more mistakes than I can count. Um, what I've learned is that, you know, it, it, it's, it's, it's an old cliche, but, uh, but, but, you know, if you learn from a mistake, it's still a win. And uh, another way I like to think about it is every experience is a building block, right? What did you learn from that? What are the relationships you built? Even if the tangible result you created uh, wasn't what you hoped or you missed specs or, you know, it, it was, it doesn't even work. What are the, what are the pieces of that tangible result? So, um, it, 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 that, you know, that's, that's kind of, I always say if you have 1% of success on something, you better get to work failing because you got to fail 99 times to get to until you're going to succeed. So you better get busy failing, right? Fail, like fail early and often and yeah. fast. You got to fail 99 times to get to your success. Um, so look, you know, the reality is that anyone who uh, has a lot of success to show is somebody who takes a lot of opportunities. And you, you just have to look at what are you taking out of every experience? Definitely. I couldn't agree more. And the last chance we get to spin through your mind and hack into your mind, Bruce, is a little bit of self-discovery for you. So we're going to do a bit of time travel. You get to bump into Bruce at 21. What's going to be your advice to him at that time? You know, I would tell myself, work harder. Don't let yourself off the hook so often. Now, it's easy for me to say that now because I'm 53. And so as, as much as I believe I've done a lot of hard work over the years, every day I've taken off, I think, well, gee, if I had worked harder that day, then now I'd have more time to myself. <laughs> you know, I always tell young people, the harder you work when you're young, the more options you're going to have when you're older. Yeah. It's so true, though, isn't it? It's just so true. However, at 21, you think the world is going to be a long way away and 53 is a long way away, but it soon comes around, doesn't it? It sure does. And um, here we are. <laughs> yeah, right. Absolutely. Folk are going to be listening to this and thinking, I want to get a piece of the action. How can I find out more about what Bruce and the team are doing? Where can we direct them? Well, uh, you can always find us at rainmakerthinking.com. And uh, we got a lot of stuff going on there. And uh, it's most of it's free. <laughs> and um, of course, I'm on Twitter at Bruce Tolgan and I'm on LinkedIn. And you can always get the book wherever books are sold Amazon, Barnes and Noble, uh, wherever books are sold. Awesome. And we'll make sure that we put some links to the show notes so that as folk are finished listening they can head over and click on those links and go straight to find out more about what you do so bruce from my perspective i've just had a bunch of fun chatting with you and really listening to the passion and energy that comes with what you do with rainmaker thinking i want to wish you absolutely every success with being indispensable at work i 
I'm pretty assured that, you know, it's going to really enable people to start to be really thoughtful about how they set themselves up for success. So from my perspective, Bruce, just wanted to say thanks ever so much for being on the show. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for making it so much fun and, and making it so easy. That's awesome. Cheers, Bruce. Hey, thanks so much. I genuinely want to say a heartfelt thanks for taking time out of your day to listen in too. We do this in the service of helping others and spreading the word of leadership. Without you listening in, there would be no show. So please subscribe now if you haven't done so already. Share this podcast with your communities and network and help us develop a community and a tribe of leadership hackers. And finally, if you'd like me to work with your senior team, your leadership community, keynote an event, or you would like to sponsor an episode, please connect with us via our social media. And you can do that by following and liking our pages on Twitter and Facebook. Our handle there is at Leadership Hacker. Instagram, you can find us there at the underscore leadership underscore hacker. And at YouTube, we're just Leadership Hacker. So that's me signing off. I'm Steve Rush, and I've been the Leadership Hacker.